All right, everybody, welcome back to the Millennial Sales Podcast. Your host, Tommy Tahoe Alemo. It's June 8th, it's episode 308. Um, this is where you come as a young salesperson to get after it and, and get to the next stage of your sales career. So excited for this. Um, this, this guest has been uh, high, high on my list of people to get on this damn show uh, for a while now. <clears throat> he was actually my director uh, all of last year. And so I don't know, I didn't feel comfortable asking him to come on and, uh, and chop it up. And so now that he's in a new role over at Gong, I've got Chris Orlob, AKA Professor Orlob, uh, joining me in this episode. One of the more impressive people that truly I've ever met, um, just his thirst for knowledge and, you know, hunger for growth and continual improvement. Uh, blows my mind. And it's, it's unlike really anyone I've met. And, you know, I think I'm into this stuff and he pushes me and gets me to a next level. So I love hearing his story of uh, getting into sales, of entrepreneurship, of what he's doing at Gong, the way he thinks, the way he learns, all these different things. So I hope you enjoy it. Um, before we get to the content, a quick word. The show is brought to you by the Up and Up community. This is a private sales community that I just launched with my friend, Anthony Natoli. And it's all about helping salespeople uh, balance the dichotomy of crushing their number, but also trying to find fulfillment, mental health, uh, and clarity as you're doing that, which can be a very tough road. So if you want to learn more, go to patreon.com slash up and up, or hit me up on LinkedIn. My name is Tom Alamo, and uh, you got the link right in my profile, or you could just DM me with questions. So without further ado, Professor Orlob on the mic, let's go. All right, we got Chris Orlob, the original gong LinkedIn influencer, the man of many colorful floral shirts. Welcome to the podcast, my friend. I'm excited to be here. I, I've got to start this off with saying that um, I've been wanting to have you on here for probably since I met you, uh, but needed to wait till you weren't my boss anymore. And I did put as my fun fact, I'll just kind of let this out of the bag now. Uh, they asked for fun facts for President's Club, and I said uh, that my fun fact was being Chris Orlob's second favorite rep on his team. So um, did I say that I just, one time? No, I just made that up. So who's my uh, first favorite? Probably Jake. <laughs> <laughs> of course. <laughs> so uh, excited to have you on, man, and uh, and get into the world of uh, your career and and personal development. Yeah, I was wondering if, you know, I was going to, how long it was going to take you to invite me on here. I was kind of offended for a while, but now I get it. You didn't want to, you didn't want to interview your boss's boss at the time, but that's all in the past. So let's do it. Here we are. Here we are. Um, so something that I always find interesting, um, you know, as before we get to what you're doing nowadays and things like that, is just the path that people get to get into sales. I feel like everyone's got their own unique interesting story for getting in there. So I'd love to hear how that came to be and, and when you started actually selling, um, if it was before, like while you were in college and, or high school yeah. or when those days were. Yeah, I have some, I have a few stories. Uh, the first time I ever transacted something was a golf ball in exchange for dollars. <laughs> uh, I grew up uh, at the end of the 17th hole on a golf course, like at the end of the fairway. And we had a <clears throat> fence that was probably about as high as my desk. And so throughout the summer, like our backyard would collect golf balls from golfers slicing it. And so when I was a little kid, I would like accumulate these and I would sell them. 
So at all times we would have buckets upon buckets of golf balls. And so I would sell golf balls, uh, 25 cents, five for a dollar. That was the first time I ever sold anything. My dad kind of supervised me and I, that was like my first rush of like closing a deal or transacting something. And I think that's, you know, like the endorphins you get from that probably uh, left some neuro pathways that shaped my career later on. And so fast forward, um, I was really into wanting to be a professional musician at the end of high school and at the beginning of college. But what surprised me is years later, after I had you know, kind of canned that dream for various reasons, I found an old sheet of goals that I wrote down. This is like, I probably wrote these when I was 16 years old, long hair, pierced ears at the time, wanted to be like the world's greatest drummer. And a bunch of them are what you would expect from somebody who wanted to be the world's greatest drummer. It was be the world's greatest drummer and, you know, tour with a band and that kind of stuff. But a few of them surprised me. One was learn sales, learn marketing, um, and like a few other like business and financial goals. And I was probably like 21, 22 when I found this sheet of goals and I was surprised. I'm like, yeah, I was thinking about this stuff apparently when I was, you know, like a young musician. And so my dad grew up in like, you know, a bunch of different kind of uh, sales jobs. And so I grew up understanding the value of sales and the value of being able to ratchet up your income uh, in a way that's not just correlated with the number of hours you invest in your day job. So fast forward to college, I sold uh, starving student cards door to door. These are like little coupon books you would sell in yeah. you know, the dorms and students would buy them for like 30 bucks a piece and they'd get discounts on a bunch of like services and um, activities and food and stuff. And just knocking on doors was a really um, great experience from a personal development standpoint because it's kind of scary. And I'm really into doing things that are scary because that's how you, you know, push your comfort zone. That's how you grow as a person. And I remember the first time I made a hundred bucks in a day, I was like, I, I'm totally going to retire. Like within a few, within just a few short years here, like I am rich. <laughs> uh, so, so that's how it all started for me as far as selling stuff goes. And I've still, I'm still addicted to, you know, both the extrinsic and intrinsic rewards that you get from selling and leading people that sell stuff. So let's, let's take a quick detour from sales, uh, into the music part. I, I wasn't going to bring up the music part of your life, but you did. So now we're, we're there, uh, yeah. and we'll avoid any, any old pictures, but, um, can you tell me what the name of your band was, uh, or at least one of the bands that, uh, yeah. that I know of? Yeah. The, uh, awaken the giant is the one you're thinking about. Yeah. And coming from the Tony Robbins, was that because of the Tony Robbins book? Mm -hmm. or it was that, inspired by Tony, Tony Robbins book called Awaken the Giant Within, which actually, <laughs> check this out, right sitting here. on my desk right now, this wow. book is probably 15 years old and I still occasionally flip through it. Uh, <clears throat> but that book like uh, gave me a sense of direction for the first time in my life. I remember I, I was probably a junior in high school when I read it and there's this chapter called something like building a compelling future he encourages you to go set goals and this was my first experience setting goals and i remember just floating after that exercise i was like oh my gosh like i i know like where i'm going and what i want from life and so that book had a pretty profound impact on 
my life philosophy. And so we named our band after that. I don't think any of my band members knew that that's where the name was inspired. I'm sure if they knew that, they'd be like, dude, come on, Tony Robbins, really? Because we're a bunch of like punk, you know, punks doing like uh, metal music. But yeah, that was the inspiration for my band's name. What prompted you to get into personal development and Tony Robbins at such a young age? Was that like a, your your dad's influence or something, or you just kind of like came across it in a bookstore? I don't remember exactly, but my dad did like grow up, not grow up, but I grew up with my dad kind of skimming through a few related books like that, yeah. right? Like he had Think and Grow Rich kind of laying around the house. Uh, and then another one by Jack Canfield, it was called The Success Principles. And so I was kind of exposed to that stuff. And I can't remember what led me to Awaken the Giant Within, but that's when I started like taking it really seriously when I read that book from cover to cover. Yeah. And so um, you, you get your first kind of adrenaline rush selling golf balls, then you make a hundred bucks in a day, and then you get into, um, you know, post-grad you give up the the music career, obviously, or the music dreams, and then get into InsideSales.com as the first gig after school? Yeah, during school, I was selling <clears throat> home security systems over the phone for a company called Vivint yeah. uh, in Provo. And so I did that, Provo, Utah. So I probably did that for six months during school. And then my first job after all of that was an SDR at InsideSales.com. And I think was I was that probably... 21. And, and was that like, because you'd had some sales experience before and you're reading these books, did you just pick it up quickly or what was the first you know, few months? It, like? it, it was that. And also like, I had a really smart friend who I was roommates with, who's still my best friend to this day. He was actually my wow. co-founder for the business I started prior to Gong. His name is Britain. Shout out Britain. If you're listening to this, shout I know out you're not, but shout out to Britain. <laughs> And I always like looked up to him because he was always like one or two steps ahead in terms of just like the maturity of our thinking. And he was like learning to program at the time. And he goes, you should go look at this company called InsideSales.com. They're like, they're probably like one of the hot pre-IPO companies out here. And he gave me advice that same around the same time, we were at an amusement park called Lagoon in Utah, like me and my girlfriend, who's now my wife and him and his girlfriend, who's now his, his wife. And I was just like talking with him. And he goes, if you want to do well for yourself economically, learn how to sell. And this is coming from a guy who doesn't know how to sell. He just kind yeah. of like <laughs> saw that in me. And like, that's the trajectory I was going. And I like told him, I'm like, I, you know, I want to make a lot of money, blah, blah, blah. We're talking about this. And he goes, you're already like learning how to sell, like stop screwing around with these other like eBay sales stuff you're, you know, you're dicking around with. I probably shouldn't say that. On your you, could say, <laughs> you could say whatever you want. <laughs> and, and like word for word, I still remember I wrote it down and I still think about that. He, he said, if you want to do well for yourself economically, learn how to sell. And so I'm in the habit. I was in the habit. I still am in the habit of taking his advice for the most part. And I took that advice and I went and worked at insidesales.com. I stomped down their door to get that job. I had to call and follow up and follow up for like six weeks before they finally relented and hired me, but they eventually did. And I had a fun two and a half years there. 
So what, um, so you're, you're cruising through SDR, AE, I think you got into management there as well. So you're, you're like flying up the ranks relatively quickly early on in the sales career. Yeah. Yeah. A handful of promotions. I can't remember how many it was probably three or four promotions over that two and a half year period. So what made you go, you know, kind of divert from that path where you can just keep kind of going down the the sales leadership road to start your own thing? I was so desperate at that time in life, my <laughs> life to start any sort of business as long as it was not illegal or unethical and as long as it was like scalable. That's I, I so desperately wanted to be an entrepreneur. And I remember... <clears throat> You know, I would get home from work and I worked really hard because I was successful there and I would spend all of my free time either learning or like scheming my next, you know, potential business. And I remember like walking through the local university campus after work one day because we lived right next door to it, just like thinking about what kind of business I could start. And what I ended up doing is at the time and for how young I was, I made like a decent amount of money and I saved almost all of it. My living expenses were very low. And I ended up reading this article by Paul Graham, who's like the Y Combinator founder. And I can't remember exactly what it said, but he talked about like how to fund your first startup. And I realized at the time, I think I had like $75,000 in my bank just from like saving my commissions. Mm-hmm. And my living expenses were probably $2,000 a month or something like that. And I was like, oh my gosh, I have like multiple years of runway in my bank account. I could go start something, right? Yeah. Like I'm like 23 years old or however, like who cares if I burn all of this? I have the rest of my life to make up for it. So I yeah. did, like I, I left on good terms and I jumped out of the nest before we even really had much of an idea like we kind of had a few directions we were going and Britain actually was shocked like I left my job you know he's the one I started yeah. this company with and he's like dude what why did you do this <laughs> because I and I was like we have tried to start things part-time while we've both been working and we've given up after a few weeks because we just get consumed by our jobs so I'm going to eliminate that as a problem. And so I left. And what was it like, walk me through the experience. Like you have, I mean, you weren't in in the professional workforce for too long. So maybe you didn't get too comfortable. Uh, It sounds like you were living on, on the low, maybe like living a a student lifestyle. Um, But you still, you know, had a paycheck and you still had some, some comfort and you knew you were good at sales and you were going to make, you know, a certain amount of money any year. And then you go and start something like, what was that? What was that shift like and, and how was that experience? You know, I've never been interested in security or comfort. I've been interested in freedom. And I think optimizing for security and comfort, right? right it almost sounds like those are the same things as freedom, but they're actually like polar opposites. I can't remember where I heard this, but it was like ultimate security is prison right? You're in a jail cell and like you're given meals and like you have no freedom. And so to me, it wasn't hard to to give that stuff up because like the desire I had to build a company was so overpowering, right? So the way, 
uh, we ended up getting into this is I was like a player coach by the time I left. I was a regional sales manager and I didn't feel like I was coaching the people that I was responsible for onboarding well because like I couldn't make very many of their calls because I had my own quota to carry. And so I found this industry called speech analytics, which is very old school. It's basically call recording plus transcription, but for call centers. And I got on the phone with an industry analyst for that business. And I asked him, I'm like, why doesn't this exist for B2B sales? And he said, I don't know. And that's all I needed. I was like, okay, that's, I'm doing this. But that's literally the moment. <laughs> like a few days later, I put in my notice, uh, you know, with my boss and it was off to the races and we pivoted a little bit within, you know, that kind of general ballpark idea. Um, but as soon as he said that, like coming off the realization from reading that Paul Graham article and that like, okay, I actually like, I'm, I live very cheaply. I have several years of runway in my bank. And in my opinion, there's a huge unmet need in B2B sales, getting visibility into their calls and it exists elsewhere. I had been searching for this for like a year at that point. It was just that that's enough. I'm doing it. So why, why did it ultimately fail or not work out? Oh, I, uh, I should crack open a beer to tell that story. Uh, <laughs> you, you are welcome to. This is an adult show. <laughs> I almost did. I've got like this fridge over here. Um, there, there was a lot to it. Uh, the short version is we tried to bootstrap a company that was intended to create a category. That is a recipe for failure in hindsight, right? Like if, you're, if you want to bootstrap a startup, do it. Don't try to create a category though. You yeah. need a war chest to create a category. And so after 16 months or so, um, you know, we were all living off of savings. We didn't ever raise money. And I had had my first kid in the middle of all of this. And I just felt like I was starting to get dangerously close to uh, living on the streets, frankly. Yeah. And also our third co-founder, uh, his heart started to fall, fall out of it. You could just tell like he was having second thoughts about doing this. And if he left it, it, it wouldn't have worked. And I can't remember exactly what he said, but he said something to me that like really indicated that um, he was having doubts. And that was kind of like the straw that broke the camel's back for me. I was like, all right, enough. Um, that was that. Yeah. yeah. So we'll get back to your story in a minute, but this, this whole, everything you're saying reminds me of a conversation we had a few months ago and I'm paraphrasing. So you can, you know, kind of kick me in the teeth and correct me where I'm wrong, but it, it was something about just generally kind of like how you view a, a method or a methodology to be successful. And it's kind of like, you need, you need to find like the three things that work for you, right? Like you have to, you have to be a hard worker. You don't have to be Elon Musk and work like a hundred hours a week, but you got to be like the top 10%. You got to put in your 50, yeah. 60 hours, whatever it may be. And then the second is like your, your willingness uh, and ambition to learn, which uh, we'll, we'll get to. And, and folks can probably already grasp that from reading Tony Robbins and, and all of that at a young age. And then the third, and maybe there's a, a number of things that this could be for you. It was risk-taking. And, you know, if you learn a lot and you work really hard, you could still be playing it safe and you could be 
the 10,000th employee at some insurance company and do fine. But to really, really kind of break the mold, you have to be able to take, you know, calculated risks. Um, first, let me know if I, if I butchered that at all. But second, I'd love to just hear you expound on that a little bit yeah. and where you came up with that. Uh, I don't know where I, I think I came up from it or came up with it with both or through both experience and just learning through others. But yeah, the formula is work hard, learn hard, take intelligent risks, right? If all you do is work hard, you might be able to get into like the top 20th percentile of your field just by sheer volume of work and the fact that most people don't do it. By the way, just as a sidebar, I really think people undervalue working hard today, right? Don't get me wrong. Like I value recharging and recovering and mental health and all that, but I think we've taken it too far right? Like it is a disservice to tell people you can achieve greatness in your field by working 30 or 40 hours a week. Cause you can't, Hey buddy. We got a guess. Um, <laughs> we do. And he's a loud one. Uh, the second one, so you can get into the top 20th percentile by just working hard to get into the top 10th percentile. You also have to learn because that influences the hard work, right? If you're educating yourself, if you're informing yourself, it makes your hard work more effective. So now you can get into the top 10th percentile, maybe even top the top fifth percentile. But if you just do those two things, that's still kind of a slow way of building success over a long term, however you define it. And so there's this guy named Felix Dennis, who's like probably not somebody you want to model your life after. Uh, he was the founder and, you know, just formidable entrepreneur in the UK, started a bunch of businesses, ended up being worth like between 500 and 900 million dollars. And he had this quote that really stood out to me, which was the difference between merely financially sufficient people and very, very wealthy people is their relationship with risk and the ability to live with and embrace risk. And so that influenced me pretty greatly. Um, to go start this business or try to start this business. And it, I still follow that. You know, I make certain investments that your average person probably doesn't do. I make certain career moves. <laughs> if you look at my resume, it still looks like I, I don't know what the hell I want to be when I grow up, but it's because <laughs> I'm taking conscious, intentional, what I hope are intelligent risks. So there's more to, you know, this whole you know, being successful thing than just those three. Like, frankly, it's not a methodology. All of this stuff is messy and that's fine. That's how it's meant to be. But if you do those three things and you do them well, uh, you'll probably wake up in five or 10 or 20 years in a really good spot. Hmm. So when your startup fails, um, I'd love to hear like the day that you raise the white flag, that feeling. and did you consider joining Gong as like a safety net or did you consider that a risk because you were the second U.S. employee at the time and there was you uh, know, far from a sure thing? I wasn't really thinking about it in terms of risk or lack thereof. Uh, when I closed my business, um, I really wanted to continue building that category because I had a vision for where this kind of company could go. And so I talked with all of the startups in the space at the time, all three of them. And Gong was one of them. And I ended up joining Gong for a number of reasons. 
the the main one was I didn't want to compete with a meat bend off. <laughs> it, it became very clear you want to be on his team uh, after yeah. you've talked to the guy you know about business for a while. Um, and so that that's what went into my thought process with Gong. It wasn't like me assessing risk at the time because anything was less risky than what I did. I I literally just experienced the most risky thing aside from filing for bankruptcy that you can experience with business, which is putting a bunch of money into starting a company and it not working out and you losing all or most of that money. That happened mm. to me. Yeah. So me getting a lifeguarding job was less risky than what I was coming out of, let alone joining Gong, you know, some sub $200,000 in ARR. I didn't feel like it was risky at all. Yeah, that's it's it's funny to be able to set kind of like the baseline for what what risk looks like, and then everything else is kind of a walk in the park. Um, you mentioned how you think about your career, and if if anyone goes to your LinkedIn, they see you know the InsideSales.com track of like BDR to AE to player uh, player coach to entrepreneur to product marketing manager or you know whatever you whatever that title was product marketing to um, you know, sales director and, you know, pretty much just grew a team from scratch on the growth team um, to now running multi-product go-to-market for a company that's trying to, you know, get to a billion in ARR and, and you know, pass that. So how do you think about, you know, when a lot of folks, like, let's say they want to be a, a VP of sales or a CRO as like the end destination, you know, you can follow a pretty linear path there. You can go like SDR, AE, up the management route as quick as you can. And then like, you're there, but you've taken a lot of different circular routes and I'm sure there's a lot of intention behind that. So I'm just curious, like, how do you, how do you go about like picking what that next role is going to be? Yeah. Well, the first thing I would say is like, if anybody's listening, thinking, Oh, Chris has the advice on how to become a CRO. Let me just like emphasize the fact that I am not a CRO right now. <laughs> So I can't give you advice on how to become one. I can give you my perspective and why I'm making certain moves, but they may end up in me not being a CRO. Yeah. And I'm fine with that, right? Like yeah. I would love to be a CRO, but I also have other potential opportunities that I would be open to as well. The reason I've taken the moves I have is my original goal starting out is to become a CEO. And I read this article a long time ago that was that resonated with me. And it was like the path to becoming a CEO is a long and winding one. Mm. And what they meant by that is these people who become CEOs after you know a 25 year slog tend to spend time in different business functions. And so I didn't make all of my moves just because of that article, but that was certainly something that influenced me. The other thing, and I would probably say like the driving force behind it was I wanted to do something where I was going to acquire skills because in my opinion, skill acquisition is the only silver bullet that exists when it comes to accelerating your skills. And I also wanted to make the biggest impact I could on Gong because the reason I'm at Gong, like what drives me at Gong is not so I can accumulate title and people reporting to me and OTE and all that stuff. That's not to say like, I don't care about that stuff, I do. But the thing that has kept me here for as long as I have is I want to help build a company that we can all be proud of for the rest of our lives. 
And if the role I'm playing to help us get there, the highest and best use of me is product marketing, fine. I'll, you know, I'll go lead product marketing. If the highest and best use of me and in, in pursuit and service of that mission is me building the CAE team, I'll go do that. If it's me running multi-product, which is what I'm doing right now, then I'll go do that. And it just so happens that uh, that that's the case, right? The biggest way I can make an impact on the mission of building a company that we're all proud of for the rest of our lives and we can tell our grandchildren about is me helping transition Gong from being a single product to a multi-product company on our quest to build a billion dollars in ARR. You talked about um, skill development and what that means for, to be a CEO. And, um, you know, I'd never heard that before, but that actually makes a lot of sense in, in terms of like trying to understand all these different parts of a business so that you can run it. Mm -hmm. When we think about skill development, and I know how, how you know, passionate you are about that. When you think about that for, for salespeople, let's just stick with that. And if someone was starting their sales career, like where would you point them to first as like the most like top three or, or five, like most valuable skills that they should start with um, that are going to be like kind of the big rocks mm. that can really, you know, elevate them and, and get them jumpstarted in their career. I think the lifelong pursuit of expanding your business acumen is the best thing you can do mm. because even though you should learn sales skills, what will make you exceptional as a sales professional and even a sales leader is not being a great salesperson. It's being a great business person who happens to be good at selling mm -hmm. because that's, that's ultimate credibility with your customers. Like I've never heard, I've never heard a customer go, I like totally lean on this salesperson because of how persuasive he is. Yeah. That's valuable. I'm not like, you know, downplaying persuasive ability, but they instead lean on salespeople because they have a high degree of business acumen. They can think through the implications a problem is having throughout their business. They can solve complex business problems. And so my advice is almost like, it almost feels like the opposite of what you are asking, which is like to be the best salesperson, first become the best business person. And if you do that and you know the mechanics of selling, you know how to do discovery and peel back the onion and understand the business pain that you're solving for and how to demonstrate that you can solve that business pain. And you can speak to like, you know, financial implications and product roadmap implications and, you know, market reputation implications. If you can have that conversation, you'll leave everybody else in the dust. Mm. So let's say you're, you know, I'm a, uh, you know, 21 year old, I just graduated college, or I just came from being a teacher for 10 years. And I have little to no business acumen. Um, like, where would I, where should I start? Well, it's not going to happen by the time you're 22, or even 23. It's like I said, it's like a lifelong pursuit. Mm. So, you know, there's no single answer. It's read a bunch of books, sales books, and otherwise business books, finance books, it's expose yourself to industry knowledge through like podcasts and what have you. Like if you work in SaaS, go listen to the Saster podcast. They talk about SaaS metrics all the time in that podcast. Uh, yeah, I don't hear many salespeople listening to that or ones like it. So, <clears throat> you know, I, I don't have like a magic bullet answer to that. It's, 
if you put in a little effort, you'll be able to identify what those sources of knowledge are pretty fast and then just go consume them. And then finally, like the other one is like work for somebody who's really, really good, right? Like when, when I ended up transitioning into sales at Gong, sales leadership, uh, I wanted to learn from Ryan Longfield, who's our chief revenue officer, because I'm a huge believer that you automatically become more like the people you spend a lot of time with. And so, you know, I worked for him for two and a half years and his fingerprints are all over my leadership style at this point. He probably doesn't even realize that, but because I've spent so much time with him and I've learned a lot. When I first started working with Ryan, I don't even think I knew what net dollar retention meant, right? Which is like a common post-sale metric that tells you like, you know, net of churn, how much are you growing your customers post-sale? And, you know, coming out of working for him for two, two and a half years, it's like net dollar retention is the most table stake metric <laughs> that I know that's in my arsenal and my vocabulary. Yeah. Can we, um, while we're, <laughs> you just reminded me while we're talking, uh, kind of like a tactical thought, um, anytime that I get on a call with a customer and I talk about, um, how gong forecasts and, you know, how we do pipeline reviews and things like that. I always bring up that I just get, I would get kind of like kicked in the throat if I didn't have a good quantifiable business pain on a deal uh, in a pipeline review, uh, which is a metaphorically, I right? I wasn't, yes, yes, nobody yes. was doing <laughs> kicking in the throats. Correct. 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 Um, could you just, could you expand about upon that for like a more tactical point around why that was such a focus for you as a sales leader? Um, and, and just, you know, why that was like always the thing that we would focus on in like a team meeting or, or in pipeline reviews, that was like, seemed to be always your first question. So why was I so focused on making sure all of your deals had a quantifiable business pain? That's yeah. the question we're after. Yeah. Because it's the most fundamental part of getting a deal done, right? Like th- there's so much to unpack just in that one question. Because number one, if you have it, that means there's some sort of urgent pain and that gets people to act. Right. If there, if that doesn't exist, then people are going to smile and nod and pretend they're interested and then go dark on you because there's actually no urgency. There's no problem to be solved. So that's number one. Number two uh, speaks to what I learned from a guy named John McMahon in his book, Qualified Sales Leader, which is if you slow down the front end of the sales cycle by getting that stuff, then you'll speed up the second half. Uh, because that's like, it's like pouring the foundation of a skyscraper, right? Like you're getting the foundation done and then you can build, uh, in a very rapid rate. Um, and also it's comes in handy when it comes to negotiating with procurement later on, because you can quantify it. And and that speaks to the third reason is you can quantify it. Therefore you can help your customer justify spend, right? So it's it within that single thing. Do you have a quantifiable business pain? That speaks to people buy on emotion and justify with logic. The pain is emotion. The quantifiable nature of that pain is how people justify it with logic. Mm -hmm. So if you're selling Gong to an account management leader who has a churn problem, they feel pain because that's their job performance indicator, right? Like they're not performing well in their job. Their life is not good in that situation. And if you can quantify it, you can say churn last year, gross churn last year was 20%. It's 30% now. What's your up for renewal base? $10 million. Okay. 
That's another 10%. That represents a million bucks. I'm charging you a hundred grand. They're like, perfect. That's what I needed to tell my CFO. Yeah. Let's do it. Yeah. I love it. Um, the last topic I wanted to get into with you before we get to some rapid fires to hopefully trip you up a little I'm bit so nervous. is, uh, is, uh, <laughs> uh, is, is around goal setting. Uh-huh. Uh, we, we've kind of moseyed around the topic from the Tony Robbins days from, uh, you know, when you were a drummer um, and, and everything from that standpoint. But I, I believe if I remember correctly, that you, you have a set of goals for, you kind of have like a, a sentence goal for like where you, what you foresee for, you know, your life's journey or, or, you know, who you are, or who you want to be. And then you have a number of kind of goals for, I think the year that maybe you adjust throughout the year and, and you, I, I think you either write them or look at them every morning, but I'd love to hear you just kind of expand on like what that goal setting routine looks like. Yeah. I feel like I'm actually like probably kind of dysfunctional when it comes to goals because I have so many of them and like, if I don't have a goal, I like cease to exist. I'm like, what's, what am I doing? And it's probably like a little too much. Like I need to just like stop and smell the roses every now and then. But I learned a long time ago that your brain is a goal seeking organism, right? If you feed it with a specific measurable goal that can quickly be judged, whether it's accomplished or not, it releases your brain, your releases the chemical cascade that we all know as motivation. And so, I, I mean, I don't even know if I have to say anything else. Like that's, that is a powerful thing. Your brain is wired in such a way where if you set a goal and it's well-defined, then it automatically releases certain chemicals most of the time, unless it's like a bad goal that's misaligned with your values or something that we experience as motivation. And so I'm pretty big on goal setting. Um, I typically have like one dominant goal in my life that I read every morning right now it's to grow gong to a hundred billion dollar market cap uh and then I have a bunch of other like sub goals for different areas of my life like health and fitness um other smaller career goals financial goals family goals uh lifestyle and adventure goals like traveling and what have you so Mm, I love it you said you said 100 billion with a b yeah. That's where we're going. Okay. I like to hear it. That's the goal. <laughs> Why not? I love it. I love it. Um, actually, I'm going to go one last thing before the rapid fire. Um, because, you know, where, where a lot of people probably know you from, or at least first knew you from with your LinkedIn fame was the early days of Gong. And such a unique way of capturing the market with the different blog posts and like using Gong data and Gong Labs, as it's now called, to, you know, break through and kind of create new types of content. I'm curious, like, how, what did, what was the thought process behind that? Was that like, hey, let's look at what everyone's doing and do the exact opposite because everyone's based on theory and we're going to go based on actual hard data? Or was it just like, hey, let's just kind of throw it out there and, and see if it works and the first post exploded and then you just ran with it and it, it, it was It was that. Down. It was yeah. that. Uh our first Gong Labs post was probably published within like seven or eight days of me working at Gong. Uh, okay. We had an ebook, like a gated ebook that people had to fill out a form. And it showed like, here are five insights we learned from analyzing 25,000 sales calls. 
and I got Amit and Udi on the phone, Amit Skung, CEO. Udi was at the time my boss, uh, our chief marketing officer. I was like, I am fairly certain that if we play our cards right and turn this into an article rather than a gated piece of content, it will go viral. Can I run with that idea? And they were like, yeah, go for it. And so we published it on Sales Hacker at the time. It got, I think, like 1,200 shares within the first 48 hours. And we were all like, okay, I think we've found something that works. That works. <laughs> and so we just kept repeating it. Like we kept coming up with new angles of like, you know, how could we get our data science team to analyze sales conversations in a certain way? And that was probably like 60 or 70% of my job for the first couple of years at Gong. And we just made it a goal to like put out one of those articles probably every three weeks or so. Um, and it worked tremendously well. So I wish I could tell you like we had this like mastermind plan, you know, where we all got in like a smoke filled room with cigars and, you know, came up with something, but it was literally just like, hey, let's try this thing. I'm pretty sure it's going to work. It did. And then we just repeated it and we still repeat it. Yeah. Yeah. That's how most, most great ideas happen. Um, all right. Let's cut the suspense. Let's get to some of the rapid fire. Um, the first thing I got to get my inhaler, get your inhaler, crack open a, a, a Pacifico or whatever you, whatever beer you drink uh, with that shirt and, uh, and get ready. So we're big, <laughs> we're big learners on this podcast. Uh, we've talked about a number of books, talked about Tony Robbins and a few others, John McMahon's. Um, if there's any other books that have significantly impacted your life or your career, I'd love to hear them. Um, if Tony Robbins in that book was, is really the standalone, then any other books that, you know, you've been really getting into lately, uh, will play just fine as well. Yeah. I, uh, I'll reverse and ask if, there's like a specific subject or category of book and that'll help me whittle it down because I've read hundreds, but the first two books were pretty impactful that like I read uh, after Awaken the Giant Within that really got me on a reading streak, which was Think and Grow Rich, mm. right? Like I still flip through that book to this day. And then the second book I read was Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And a lot of people are kind of critical of both of those books, but I think they're fundamental. Like I'll you know, argue with somebody until they're blue in the face. Like they're the fun of that. They're not like so insightful that they like twist your brain. And that's kind of the point. They're about the fundamentals. Like, yeah. So. Yeah. yeah. I think you grow rich is my number one all time. That was the book that changed my life. And I feel like if you haven't read that, you should start there. And, um, you know, if you're, if you're early in your career, like that's the best place in my opinion to start is with a Tony Robbins and Napoleon Hill, a Dale Carnegie, then get into the Chris Voss stuff or whomever else after, but start with the fundamentals of your mindset, the attitude, like totally. the, the hunger, all of that. And then, then the rest will follow. Agree. Um, any other ways that you like to learn? You mentioned the Sasser podcast, but I don't know if you're a big podcast or YouTube person, or you follow folks on LinkedIn, but any other, you know, newsletters, anything else that you've been getting into recently? Yeah. I, I like to listen to podcasts. I listen to a lot of audiobooks, mm -hmm. and then like the biggest way I learn lately. And by lately, I mean like the past five years is I take on projects that like I'm terrified by and that I don't know how to do right. Like this multi-product thing, I know how to do like pieces of it. I launched some products when I was in multi or in product marketing. 
I obviously know how to, you know, lead sales teams. And so this is like a little bit of a combination of those two, but there's still so much of it uh, that I don't know how to do. And so um, there's this book, actually, this is probably the book I should have mentioned. It's called So Good They Can't Ignore You. Mm. I just cannot imagine anybody following that book and them not being like magnificently successful after a decade uh, of doing that. But uh, how did I even get here? Uh, I follow that book very religiously. The whole thesis is you should collect rare and valuable skills because that's what's needed for an exceptional career. And so when I think about like my career experiences, knowing that I'm pointing toward either like a CEO job or a CRO job or some something in that neck of the woods at some point, what rare and valuable career skills and experiences can I accumulate in service of those goals? Mm. Yeah, that's Cal Newport, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's a great book. Um, okay, what goes on? I'm interested on this one. What goes on in the Chris Orlob headphones music-wise nowadays? <laughs> still, still the stuff I listened to when, you know, Awaken the Giant was a band. Uh, I listened okay. to angsty, punk, screamo metal music. A Day to Remember was yeah. and still is my favorite band. Um, but back then, I used to exclusively listen to that genre and other adjacent genres. I've, you know, I've since lightened up a little bit because I was like almost snobby about it back then. And so sometimes I'll listen to like solo piano music, right? Like I enjoy like a good scotch and cigar and listen to that and pretending I'm fancy. Um, And then like a bunch of stuff my wife listens to, I think is really good. Like she listens like Paramore and this band called Haim, which we went and saw in Santa Barbara a few years ago. Uh, Old stuff like Fleetwood Mac the Eagles, you know, stuff I kind of grew up uh, hearing my dad listen to. So in some senses, it's it's fairly broad. In other senses, it's pretty narrow. Like I don't listen to like top 40. I generally don't listen to like rap, nothing against like those genres. I just, they've never really appealed to me. Sometimes country. My wife hates it, (laughs) but I love listening to country every now and then. (laughs) Can buy you a boat. Uh, we'll leave it at that. Uh, Good one. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. Is there a general quote or philosophy um, or mantra that you live by or that, you know, particularly inspires you? Yeah, there are a couple uh, that I've been recently thinking about a lot. One is be a cause in the world rather than an effect. Make things happen rather than let things happen to you. I think there is too much of a mentality in today's world of things are happening to me. I'm a victim. And of course, there are legitimate victims in the world. Most people who claim to be one aren't one, aren't one, just frankly speaking. Mm -hmm. Uh, Another one is when you decide to go after something, don't come back until you get it. I think that's a really, you know, solid one. I can't remember where I heard that. I won't add a third. Those are two pretty powerful ones. Those are great. Um, What's one thing that you like to do um, outside of work to recharge outside of I, reading? I like to paddleboard. I, mm. We live in Foster City, uh, which, you know, for anybody who's in the Bay Area, it's like a city, well, I guess outside of the Bay Area. It's right next to the Bay, and the Bay snakes through the entire town forming lagoons. 
And so windsurfing and paddleboarding are big. And I'll typically throw my seven-year-old son on the nose of the paddleboard to give me an extra lat workout. And we'll go out on, you know, warmer days where it's like above 72 or so, which we're starting to hit right now. And we'll get out in the water. There's something about being in the water that like really just kind of washes away my worries. I love being in the ocean and being in the water. And unfortunately, I don't know how to surf. I want to desperately at some point, probably when we go to Mexico, we've got that (laughs) surf safari for President's Club. I'll be participating in that. But yeah, spending time in the water. Nice. Yeah. I love paddle boarding. And I feel like one reason, the same thing, I I went surfing once and I was underwater the whole time. It was way harder than I thought. And so I guess I need a lesson, but paddle boarding is a great one. My last one for you, Chris, who do you want to come next on the millennial sales podcast? You should get Jameson Young, SVP (laughs) of corporate sales at Gong. He does not like personal branding or telling his story or thought leadership. He's like kind of a proud and quiet operator, right? He's like proud of the fact that he's not promoting himself. I think it's a shame. I would tell this to his face. I hope he's listening right now. He has such an amazing story, like joining Gong almost as early as me and building the sales organization to what it is. Uh, There are so many insights that I'm sure eh, then again he's not that smart of a guy so maybe it'd be totally a waste of time so (laughs) but then again it sounds like you have a policy for not interviewing your boss or your boss's boss or your boss's boss's boss so maybe we'll we'll have to wait (laughs) for that one it's funny you say that because we were on a team meeting yesterday and him and I were the first ones on and he's like I was just like LinkedIn stalking you I didn't even I I heard you had a podcast but I didn't really know like who you had on and, and this and that I'm like, yeah. I'm like, Hey, open invite. If you want to ever come on, he's like, no, I'm not a podcast guy. So I'll have to send him. (laughs) That was legitimately yesterday. So I will have to send him this clip and put a little Orlov pressure on him. Cause that would be a great one. Yeah. Yeah. That'd Um, be a good one. Um, Chris, this is a blast. I appreciate you coming on. Um, before I let you go, obviously, you know, tell folks where they can connect with you or or learn more. And then I don't know, uh, not to put you on the spot. I don't know if you're, you're hiring or there's any other kind of stuff that you want to throw out there, but this is your, your moment for any call to action. I should have thought about this in advance. I don't think I have much of a call to action for anybody except for bygone. Yes, please. <laughs> you're, from you're me. sales leader. From me. Really. Uh, <laughs> and if you want to connect with me on LinkedIn, I'm, you know, pretty liberal about connecting with people on LinkedIn. And so feel free to hit me up there. Chris Orlob, ladies and gentlemen, I appreciate you coming on, man. Thanks for having me.